Amen. You can turn your Bibles over to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Philippians, and we are focusing on the theme of a renewed mind because Paul gives the or uses the Greek word phroneo, which apparently is Joel's favorite word. I, I looked at it a few Sundays ago, his message. He said it's his favorite word, and it appears several times throughout the book of Philippians. And so we're focusing on this idea of having a renewed mind. And we've talked about uh, Paul's prayer and affection. Uh, we've talked about the partnership that Paul and the Philippians shared in the work of the gospel. We've talked about Paul's chains and how they actually served to advance the gospel rather than hinder the gospel. And then last Sunday, Eli preached a powerful message on the humility of Christ and how Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage, uh, but he took on the very nature of a servant. And that now brings us to Philippians chapter 2 uh, in verse 14. And what we're going to be talking about today is we're going to talk about shining like stars, uh, which is Paul's language. And we're going to look at two specific examples that the Apostle Paul gives that reflect this idea of shining like stars that we're going to read about right now. Uh, look in chapter 2 and verse 14. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Uh, here Paul talks about this idea of shining like stars, and he talks about how we're to shine like stars as we hold firmly to the word of truth, or the word of life, rather. And I think the central idea in this paragraph is that uh, he's combating the idea of when we face challenges, we're not to grumble and argue. Uh, anytime we face challenges, we're at a fork in the road, and so we could either take the avenue of grumbling, arguing, complaining, murmuring, that sort of thing. Or we could take the other road, which is to be glad and rejoice. And Paul talks about how he is, even at this time of writing, his life is being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from their faith. And he talks about being glad and rejoicing. And he's calling this church to do the exact same thing or to imitate the exact same attitude that he himself had. You know, if we choose to be glad children instead of grumbling children, that's when we're going to shine like stars uh, as we hold firmly to the word of life. And that phrase, holding firmly to the word of life, reminds me of a couple uh, stories in the Gospel of John. I think about in John chapter 8 when the Jews who had believed him uh, we're listening to Jesus, and Jesus just says, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what Jesus meant by set you free is free from enslaving sin. And a couple chapters before that in John's gospel, 
Uh, we have another story where Jesus has been teaching about being the bread of life. I noticed that we actually sang about the bread of life this morning. And he's talking about being the bread of life, and this is a hard teaching, and some of the disciples are struggling with it, and they start to stray away from Jesus, at which point Jesus looks over at Peter and the boys and says, hey, you know, do you want to leave as well? And, and what's Peter's response? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words to eternal life. And so when I think about that phrase, holding firmly to the word of life, that's what I'm thinking about, the words that God provides, the word that Jesus himself taught, that we cling to for eternal life. This is what the Apostle Paul wants all of us to do, is be disciples who shine like stars amidst a dark world. And so we have to hold to the word of life, and we have to hold out the word of life. And the church in Philippi, what we're going to read about, they had two shining examples of just that sort of thing in a man named Timothy and Epaphroditus. You know, these examples are really important. Uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as we read the next two paragraphs, basically what we have in the book of Philippians is a travel itinerary. Uh, Paul is talking about how he wants to send Timothy to Philippi. Uh, he finds it necessary to send Epaphroditus. And what's interesting about that is usually Paul puts the travel itinerary towards the end of his epistles. But in this case, he actually puts the travel itinerary right there in the middle of Philippians because the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus actually fits into the argument that he's been making throughout this whole letter. Everything that Paul has been talking about throughout Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're going to find that Timothy and Epaphroditus are these shining examples of exactly that. In chapter 3, which we're not going to get to today, uh, Paul talks more autobiographically about himself. And then in chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model... Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And it emphasizes the importance of having examples in our own fellowship, uh, models that we can imitate, uh, people that we can be so close to that we can actually see with our own eyes. We can keep our eyes on how they live their life, how they have a marriage, how they parent their children. That's one of the most foundational ways that we learn anything in life when we're children is by seeing the examples of those people around us. And the same is true in the church when we become Christians. We have models all around us that we're to keep our eyes on, to look at their life and to imitate, as Paul talks about here. There's a, a quote, uh, which skipped a slide there, but uh, the quote by Mark Twain. Uh, Mark Twain said, Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Uh, you know, I, I, it's easy to try to fill out, you know, the blue, play, the blue letters there. Uh, if you didn't know what those words were, it would be really tempting to think, oh, he's going to say few things are more important than the power of a good example. Uh, but instead he says the annoyance of a good example. And I think probably most of us have uh, experienced that in some way. We see the, the goody two-shoes, the teacher's pet, the person that's always saying the right thing, always knows the right answer. Uh, we look at these examples and we're just annoyed 
by that example. And frankly, I think a lot of times people in the world look at Christians this way, as we look at them as the annoyance of a good example. And I think there's probably some truth in that in the larger religious world, but I think the example we want to be is a godly example. And I would distinguish that from the example of just a good example. Because a godly example can be somebody that is meek and humble uh, and quietly serves and goes under the radar. And those people are so inspiring. We admire them and we want to imitate them. And anytime you've known somebody like that in the church, you have been inspired by their example of faith. And you've thought about your life and the trajectory that it's on and thought, I want to be like that brother or that sister. You know, This might be a common feeling, what Mark Twain said, but the truth is that a good example is a really important thing. And Timothy and Epaphroditus are concrete examples of so much that Paul has already written about. They were partners in the gospel. They had affection for Christ's church, which we read about in chapter 1 and verse 7 through 8. They lived lives worthy of the gospel. We read about in chapter 1, verse 27. They shined like stars as they held to the word of life, which we just read about. And most importantly, they were living illustrations of the mindset of Christ Jesus. The phroneo that Joel uh, often refers to. Uh, The mindset that Eli preached about last Sunday. Uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus were familiar examples to the church in Philippi of those who, like Jesus, had made themselves nothing. And like Jesus, they took on the very nature of a servant. And like Jesus, they humbled themselves. And so as we read this, next couple paragraphs, note that the basic message here is that Paul wants to communicate to the Philippians that he's sending Epaphroditus sooner than later, and he's sending Timothy later than sooner. That's the basic idea. But more than that, what we're going to find in Timothy and Epaphroditus is that they are two shining examples of genuine concern for others and great courage in the face of risk. Now, we'll first look at the genuine concern of Timothy. And if you look in verse 19, it says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. You know, Timothy, we see, uh, or sorry, Paul hopes to be able to send Timothy to the Philippians. Uh, and Timothy is like no one else. Specifically when it comes to how he shows this genuine concern for their welfare, which is apparently synonymous with the interest of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' interests were for the welfare of the Philippian church, and Timothy had that same interest, that same concern for the brothers and sisters in Philippi. And Paul probably doesn't mean that he knows of no other Christians anywhere who demonstrate comparable spiritual maturity, 
but that he has no one else available to send to this church. No one else that is of the same caliber as Timothy. Timothy is outstanding among his peers. He was an exceptional worker alongside the Apostle Paul. Just a little bit about Timothy's life. You know, Paul and Timothy were very close. They were with each other in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and Berea, in Corinth, and Ephesus, and with him while he was in prison in Rome. Timothy was connected with Paul in writing no fewer than five of the letters in the New Testament. And his great value was that Paul could send him in his place. Timothy was like a representative or a substitute that he could send in. Uh, and he wanted, anytime Paul wanted to encourage or re rebuke another church or find out new information, he could just send Timothy and he would be a representative of the Apostle Paul. And the remarkable thing about Timothy was that he showed this genuine concern and he was imitating the mindset of Jesus. Now, I think we have a lot of great examples, even just being here over the last maybe six months we've been here now. Uh, it's really easy to see all of the examples that are shining through in the fellowship. I think about uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew, one of our graduates. Uh, I just love being able to go on campus with Andrew. and We just go out and we'll share our faith together. Uh, Andrew is a courageous young man, uh, willing to just walk up to somebody and share his faith. Uh, one of the guys we've reached out to that's been starting to come around is a guy that Andrew has reached out to. Uh, and Andrew just is always at the, the devotionals. He's always there to encourage, to be an encouraging presence. And he has this genuine concern, this genuine love for the church. Uh, even this morning, just walking in, seeing Andrew studying his Bible, just listening to the worship team practice and, and just being here early uh, was an encouraging example that Andrew displayed. I think about Ellen. Uh, Last Friday, we had a campus devotional at our house, and we were talking about, uh, at one point I just asked Ellen, what do you think your gifts are? And Ellen shared about teaching, and immediately my mind thought, oh, she wants to teach, like, more publicly. And she actually shared, you know, one of the things I really enjoy doing is being able to study the Bible with people and uh, leading follow-up studies with people. And, and she just has that heart and desire to be able to help uh, young Christians to grow in their faith. And as we talked about that, I think Lilia jumped in the conversation and started to talk about how Ellen's really good at teaching the Bible. Uh, she has a gift, a concern to be able to help other people, and she's an example in that way. You know, Timothy, not only is his genuine concern noted, but it's that he was a proven minister. He proved himself, as Paul says, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. That's an idea there that probably is a little bit unfamiliar to most of us today. The idea of as a son with his father, most of us didn't grow up going to work with our dads. Uh, but before the Industrial Revolution, that was a much more common thing to learn to be a fisherman, to be a carpenter, uh, to pick up the tricks of the trade and to learn from your dad the family business. And as that would happen, that would be your primary apprenticeship, would be to your dad. And so your dad would teach you the tricks of the trade, would increase your load of responsibility, and you would gradually learn your father's line of work. And that's the image that's being given here with Paul and Timothy. 
You know, Timothy had learned his first steps in the ministry from the Apostle Paul. And in that environment, he had proved himself, and Paul was more than willing to send him when he was able to. I think we have to be very careful not to become sort of discipleship theoreticians, if I can say that word. Uh, Be careful to become ministry speculators or uh, church daydreamers of how I think the church should be. Uh, Certainly, we need to, to actually engage thoughtfully in Christian service and ministry, but we have to learn from the examples of people who have come before us and maybe know a few things that we can learn from. Let me just ask this question. If there was a significant ministry task or job to do, would the mature Christians around you be confident that you would be able to do a great job? Would the mature Christians around you be confident that you could be sent out to maybe support and strengthen a small church or church planting team? Or how about if we were to scale down the ministry task to something that was maybe less dramatic but still vitally important, would people be confident that you could lead that Bible study or organize the meals for someone in need or get the D group together, the discipling group, or have those non-Christians over for, for dinner and make them feel loved and not be weird in the process? That's a hard thing. Absolutely. You know, we have to ask ourselves questions because we want to strive towards this sort of maturity where we could be effectively used as Timothy was in the ministry. This concrete example of Timothy, of this genuine concern, does not happen apart from the mindset of Christ because you cannot have genuine concern for others and be self-absorbed with your own interests and dreams and ambitions. Now, there's a, a, a book that was written uh, called Selfies, Searching for the Image of God in a Digital Age. And the author said this about selfies. He said, selfies have been proven to be far more than a threat to civility in sacred spaces. They can undermine our health and well-being. Selfies can be dangerous. A Spanish man was gored to death when he tried to take a selfie amid the running of the bulls in Pamplona. A 15-year-old in India photographing himself holding his father's gun died when he accidentally pulled the trigger instead of pushing the photo button. Two Polish parents taking a selfie stepped off ocean cliffs in Portugal and tumbled to their deaths in front of their children. We can get cut off from our surroundings lose focus, and suspend judgment in pursuit of the perfect picture. It was widely reported that in 2015, more people died from taking selfies than from shark attacks. How much risk will you assume to get the ultimate selfie selfie on a mountaintop, in front of a train, or with a wild animal? The blind pursuit of the perfect image, ignoring our surroundings and context, can have grave consequences. The the question is not about taking a picture of yourself. The issue is about living a life that is so self-absorbed that you don't see the needs and the concerns all around you. We have to shed the self-absorption that's so common in our world in order to have the genuine concern that Timothy had in his own ministry and as Jesus himself modeled for us. There was a skit by Groucho Marx 
And in the skit, Groucho is having a conversation with a friend in which he goes on and on and on and on and on and on talking about himself. And in the course of his continual chatter about himself, he slips into a brief moment of self-awareness and he apologizes to his friend for talking so much about himself. He politely says to his friend, well, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? You know, it's comical, but I think there's, there's representatives of that so often around us. And this guy, Timothy, in the Bible that we know so much about, it was an outstanding example of genuine concern and proven ministry. Are you? Are you an example like that? You know, Paul goes on to talk about Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus also showed genuine concern, but he uh, is described really in terms of this great courage that he had. Uh, in chapter 2, in verse 25, it says, But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. You know, what we learn about Epaphroditus is that he had this incredible courage. And Paul had hoped to be able to send Timothy to the Philippians, but he found it necessary to send Epaphroditus right then and, uh, and now. And by the way, as Paul sent Epaphroditus, what he would be sending Epaphroditus with would be a letter, the very one that we're studying. And so Epaphroditus would be the one to transport this letter. And Epaphroditus, too, is this familiar flesh and blood example of the mindset of Christ. The Philippians had heard that Paul was in prison, and they were moved to send Epaphroditus for a couple reasons. So the Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus out to, to Paul when he was in prison, and they sent a gift by the hand of Epaphroditus because distance had prevented him from doing it themselves. And this is just speculation, but probably you don't send the scrawny brother traveling with the financial gift. Epaphroditus is probably the, the, the Brian or the Eli of the, the church. He's the guy that is going to go on the journey and be able to deliver the financial offering. But Epaphroditus was also intended to be Paul's personal attendant because there was no jail system like we have in the present day. You have to go and provide every meal to anybody that you love that's in prison. And so Epaphroditus was a brave man because if you offer yourself as a personal attendant for a man that's awaiting trial on, on a charge which carried with it the death penalty, you were opening up yourself to the very same charge. 
and the very same risk of becoming involved uh, in that death penalty. And so he really did risk his life to serve Paul and the gospel. Now, what's happened as Epaphroditus goes from Philippi to deliver this gift to Paul in prison uh, is Epaphroditus has become ill. In fact, so ill that Paul makes it really clear that Epaphroditus almost died. He probably had become ill uh, while in Rome, perhaps with the Roman fever, which sometimes swept the city like a plague. And Paul would make the gravity of Epaphroditus' illness very clear throughout this section. And would note that the only reason that Epaphroditus survived was because of the mercy of God. The news of his illness had filtered back to the church in Philippi, and Epaphroditus, get this, he was distressed because he knew that his friends were worried about him. Amazingly, he wasn't distressed by his own severe illness. He was concerned for the disciples back in Philippi. What a great picture of genuine concern for others. This is actually the occasion that it actually prompted the entire letter. It's sort of Paul's thank you note for their rich generosity. And the challenge for Epaphroditus in going back to Philippi was that there would be no shortage of people that thought Epaphroditus was a quitter. Because he was supposed to stay as Paul's personal attendant, and now he's back in Philippi. And so Paul writes this letter and takes great pains to say, no, he's not a quitter. He's a guy that should be honored in the church. He had great courage. As we read this section, Paul identifies Epaphroditus with five significant descriptions. And I think it should be noted that a culture is always going to be shaped by the heroes that they have. The people that they honor and admire and respect and imitate. Think about who you admire. Think about the music that you listen to and the movies you watch and the clothes you wear and the aspirations you have and the people you talk like. And all those things reveal something about the people that we probably hold up highly in our own minds. And the people that we admire are often the people that we become like. This is why Paul takes great pains to make sure that we honor and admire the right people. You know, Epaphroditus was a brother, a co-worker, a fellow soldier, a messenger, and a minister. And likely by minister, it probably didn't mean that he was like an official, on-staff sort of minister like we tend to think. He was a mature Christian in the fellowship that backed the work to get the job done. And so uh, here we have an example in Philippians of an apostle, Paul, Timothy, who later on went on to lead churches and so forth, and then Epaphroditus, who is a mature Christian in the fellowship. And so we see these inspiring examples. And Paul says, give a guy like this a hero's welcome. Hold him in honor because he risked his life for Christ. That word risked is a really interesting word. Uh, it basically is the idea of a gambler's word. And so basically, Epaphroditus gambled his life for the sake of Christ. And 
the word that we translate risk actually has another word that means gamblers. Uh, and in early Christianity, there was actually an association of men and women in the church called the parabolani, meaning the gamblers. And it was their aim to visit the prisoners and the sick, especially those who were ill with dangerous and infectious diseases. In the second century, there was a plague that broke out in Carthage, and the people were throwing out bodies of the dead. They fled in terror, and Cyprian, the Christian bishop, gathered his congregation together and put them to work, burying the dead and nursing the sick in that city stricken by a plague. And by risking their lives, they saved the city from destruction and desolation. These were inspiring people. Now, I realize it's hard to talk about these sorts of examples without COVID coming to mind. Without addressing anything about your own personal philosophy on COVID safety precautions, masks and vaccines and social distancing and that sort of thing, uh, whatever your precautions are over the last year, I am saying that each one of us ought to examine how much fear and anxiety is actually determining our approach to life rather than the self-emptying way of Christ. And we ought to examine how that has either helped or hindered our ability to shine like stars and hold out this word of life that we read about. Christians should be marked by great courage. And just an observation, it's a lot easier to risk your life when you have the mindset of Christ because you've already made yourself nothing. It's a lot easier to gamble with nothing. And so we have this example. I think as I look at my own life, I can think about even just moving here. There is all sorts of anxiety about the decision to move here. Because we were moving here and it was going to mean my, my wife was going to be stepping out of full-time ministry and, and she would be, didn't have a job and so we would have bills to pay and things like that. And so there was anxiety that was there that I had to begin to try to sort through, and I don't know that I always did a great job doing that. And so you have to sort through the anxiety that you have to be able to make the decision that actually is going to honor God in those moments. The truth is, we'll, we will never truly be discerning, which is Paul's prayer at the beginning of this letter, if our judgment is clouded by fear and anxiety. I'm not saying anything about uh, sorry, I, let me backtrack. Uh, you know, I find that disciples, and I would use my own example as well, that we sometimes use the language of wisdom as a disguise for fear and cowardice. And I'm not saying that it's not wise to take safety precautions or that individual Christians couldn't draw different conclusions on different concerns, but we sometimes speak with the language of wisdom, but what's really going on underneath the surface is a whole lot of fear and anxiety. And I think the only way for us to figure that out is to take an honest look at our own hearts and examine what sorts of fear and anxiety is actually determining our lifestyle. And then we have to compare our life to the example that's lifted up in Scripture, like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and most obviously Jesus Christ himself. And so I want to encourage us to think through these examples and to think about 
uh, how we show genuine concern and great courage and look and evaluate the mindset of Christ that Eli preached about so that we can uh, live out these examples that, Paul, that Timothy and Epaphroditus gave for us and that we can hold firmly to the word of life that we have. Let's pray as we take the Lord's Supper and then we'll have a moment to take communion uh, and we'll reflect on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we're so grateful for uh, just this time to be able to think through uh, and to remember really last Sunday's sermon and the message that Eli preached about the mindset of your son, Jesus, and how he took on the very nature of a servant and he uh, became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And God, as we look at Timothy and Epaphroditus, we see these incredible examples uh, of people that I think we can relate to uh, maybe a lot more easily and readily. And God, I pray that we would imitate their example, uh, the model that they set for us in practical ways. I ask, Father, that you'd also just lift up the examples in our own fellowship that we might think about. Uh, help us to have humble hearts that really strive to not merely admire examples, but also take the step to imitate the things that are, are righteous and godly in our brothers' and sisters' lives. We thank you so much for the fellowship that we have here in the Chippewa Valley Church, and we ask that you bless us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.